Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. I am just arriving in Duck Lake. And I'm on my way to meet my brother Hal um, at his house, which actually used to be my dad's house. Um, If I can find it. Because I think I've actually only been there like a couple of times. That's kind of weird, I guess, maybe, to not know where your dad lived. That's Peabody and Pulitzer Prize winner Connie Walker. Connie's a Cree journalist from the Okanese First Nation in Saskatchewan. CBC audiences know her well. She worked here for more than two decades. During that time, she created and hosted the podcast Missing and Murdered. She now hosts Stolen, put out by Gimlet Media. Here's an excerpt from Season 2, Surviving St. Michael's. There were more than 100 schools that operated for over 100 years. Generations and generations of kids were forced to go. There were at least 20 residential schools in Saskatchewan alone. One of them was the St. Michael's Indian Residential School in Duck Lake. I think that's where my dad first crossed paths with the priest who abused him. I drove past it on my way to Hal's house. It was a big red brick building, three or four stories high. It always looked to me like an abandoned hospital, like something out of a horror movie. St. Michael's was one of the last schools to close in 1996. And then the truth about residential schools began trickling out, about the rampant neglect and abuse that happened inside school walls. Abuse often inflicted by the priests and nuns who ran them. Very few were ever held responsible. On Monday, Surviving St. Michael's won a Pulitzer for audio reporting. The next day, it picked up a second prestigious prize, the Peabody Award. No podcast has ever received that double honor in a single year before. Congratulations to Connie Walker and her production team at Gimlet. Tonight, we're celebrating her achievement on ideas with a lecture Connie Walker gave at Vancouver Island University. The title is Exposing the Truth, Journalism's Role in Reconciliation. I've been a journalist for over 20 years, and for most of my career, Indigenous stories have been grossly underrepresented, sometimes misrepresented, and generally misunderstood. That is starting to change. Indigenous journalists are among those on the front lines helping to bridge the divides. And there are so many incredibly talented Indigenous journalists working today who are dedicated to amplifying Indigenous voices and sharing our truths. And I feel so incredibly lucky to be one of them. It's something that I honestly could not have even imagined when I began my journalism career. 
that one day I would be able to exclusively focus on reporting on Indigenous issues and that I've been able to do that for the last eight years. In that time, I feel like I've had a front row seat to witness a transformative shift in Canadian media. Whatever your thoughts are on the future of reconciliation, there's no question that there has never been this level of interest in Indigenous life in Canada. There's never been this kind of recognition that these stories are important, not just to Indigenous people, but to all Canadians. And there have never been more efforts like this one here tonight to make space for Indigenous voices to try to understand the truth about our shared history. I definitely want to acknowledge all of the progress that has been made, but also I'm here to tell you that we need to keep pushing. We need to do better. The stakes are too high. When journalism fails in their representations of Indigenous people, it can cause incredible harm and leave lasting damage. I first realized this when I was a teenager in high school. I grew up on my reserve in my community. I'm from the Okanese First Nation in Treaty 4 territory in southern Saskatchewan. And like most kids on my reserve, I was bused into the local small town to go to school. I remember that I was in grade 12 when I first heard about Pamela George. Pamela was a young Soto mother of two. She was from the Sacame First Nation, which is not far from where I grew up, but she lived in Regina with her two young children. Pamela died in 1995. She was beaten and left on a rural road outside of the city by two white men. Now, I wasn't a teenager who paid much attention to the news, but I knew about Pamela. It was a high-profile case that dominated the headlines in Saskatchewan and also made national news. And as a young First Nations woman, I was keenly aware of the way that Pamela was spoken about in the media and how it differed from the way the two white men who were charged in her death were described. This is a quote from a TV news story that aired at the time. The accused are young and clean-cut. Steve Comerfield, a basketball star. Alex Ternowetsky, a hockey standout. They come from middle-class families. The victim was Aboriginal and a prostitute. And it wasn't just the TV news. Newspaper articles called Pamela a prostitute and didn't say much else about her life. I felt like I knew more about the men who were charged with her murder than I did about Pamela. One of them hid in the trunk when they picked her up, and they admitted to taking her to a rural area outside of the city, sexually assaulting and beating her, and they abandoned her out there, and her body was found the next day. One of their friends testified that Comerfield and Ternowetsky called him to brag about what they had done. He said they told him, quote, they got drunk, drove around, and killed this chick, and that she deserved it. She was Indian. At the time, I remember wondering if there were any First Nations journalists working in the newsrooms that were covering the trial. And it was the first time that I thought about becoming a journalist. I wrote something for our high school newsletter. I wanted to help people better understand, not just Pamela, but all First Nations, to learn about our people and our communities, to create space so that people could have empathy for Pamela instead of dismissing her. She was a young, single mother who struggled to raise a family. She was a sister, a daughter, an auntie, who is still loved and missed. 
Stephen Comerfield, the basketball star, and Alex Ternowetsky, the hockey standout, were acquitted in Pamela's murder and sentenced to manslaughter. They both served around four years of jail time and were released on bail around the time that I got my first job in journalism. I was an intern, bright-eyed and optimistic about my career and hopeful about the impact that I could have. But I quickly realized that having just one voice in a newsroom might not be enough. It was 2001. I was working on a national morning show. Back then, it seemed like the only time that Indigenous stories made the news was when there was a crisis or conflict. Maybe not just back then, actually. Um, but I remember that summer in particular, the fisheries dispute between the Mi'kmaq people on the East Coast and the non-Indigenous fishermen in Burnt Church, New Brunswick, was making national headlines. My job as an intern was to chase guests and book them to come on our show. I remember it was a Friday afternoon and I had booked the chief of the Indian Brook First Nation to come on the show the following Monday to talk about the latest developments in the dispute. And I was pretty green at that point, so I remember my senior producer at the time grilling me about the details. Did I tell him where to go? She asked me, yes, I said. It was an early morning show, so did I double check with him about the time? Yes, I said, he knows. And then she said to me, because you know those Indians, they'll go out drinking all weekend and they won't show up on a Monday morning. It was a busy, crowded newsroom, but I remember looking around to see if anyone heard what she had said but no one was paying attention to our conversation. I froze. I didn't know what to say or what to do. I was an intern, what could I say? So I said nothing. I didn't stay on the East Coast for long. A few years later, I was working on a national news program based in Toronto, when a young Indigenous woman that I knew from back home went missing. This was before social media, before Facebook, and her family had sent out an email chain asking people to forward it. Her name was Amber Redman, and I knew Amber because I coached her in volleyball when I was in university. She was the same age as my younger sister. That summer, another young woman went missing in Toronto, and her name was Alicia Ross. Amber and Alicia went missing within one month of each other in the summer of 2005, and I remember thinking there were so many similarities between them. They were both young and beautiful, both had bright futures ahead of them, both had families who were desperate for any information about their disappearances. But there were some key differences. Alicia was white and blonde, and her disappearance was covered in the national newspapers and newscasts. And Amber's disappearance barely got any local coverage. I wanted to do a story that compared and contrasted the media coverage of their cases, and at the time, I worked for a program whose mandate it was to examine the role of media. So I thought that my story would be a perfect fit for our show. I went into my executive producer's office uh, to pitch the story, but before I could begin, she held up her hand and said, this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? Again, I was the only Indigenous person in my newsroom, and I didn't feel like anything would happen if I complained, so I didn't. Around this time, the Native Women's Association of Canada had released a report called Sisters in Spirit. They estimated that there were 500 murdered or missing Indigenous women in Canada. And I remember how a lot of my colleagues scoffed at that estimate back then, thinking that it couldn't be true. And then I thought, why would they think anything different? 
there, there had been no coverage of the violence that Indigenous women and girls faced up until then, except for what we saw about Pamela. Journalists, for the most part, had been ignorant about the truths their entire careers. They couldn't understand or fathom it because they didn't understand what I and other Indigenous journalists knew because we had direct experience with that violence. Ten years later, I was part of a unit at CBC News dedicated to helping tell stories about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And every national news organization in the country was doing similar work. So what changed? Three things. The increased representation of Indigenous people in newsrooms, that was absolutely crucial. I think the shift to digital media played a huge role. And the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In 2012, I helped produce a documentary series called Eighth Fire for CBC Television. It was a four-part series inspired by the work of the TRC. The series was dedicated to exploring the relationship between Indigenous people and the rest of Canada over the last 500 years. And this is key. It was told primarily using Indigenous voices. It was the first time in my career that that much time and resources, four hours on primetime television, was dedicated to telling our stories. We interviewed Indigenous academics, artists, and leaders, and we tried to be inclusive of the diversity in our communities. We included First Nations, Inuit, and Métis from coast to coast to coast. I remember the night that the first documentary aired, and I still get goosebumps when I think of the feeling that I had hearing Native people on television with Native accents, sharing their truths and telling their stories. It was also one of my first times live tweeting. I remember I was at home in Toronto with my Blackberry, you guys remember those, and uh, on my laptop, on Twitter and on Facebook. And Wab Canoe was our host, he was online in Winnipeg as well, and we had a social media producer who was helping to spread the word. We had no idea what to expect, or at least I didn't, when the program went to air. But by the next day, it was clear that all Native Facebook was buzzing. People were commenting on the documentary and using the hashtag 8th Fire CBC. It felt like we had tapped into a community online that was just waiting to be engaged with. Our success on social media was unexpected, but we saw the opportunity and we jumped at it. After Eighth Fire, we created a digital space on CBC News called CBC Aboriginal. This was in 2013 after Idle No More, and the big news stories in Indigenous communities were starting to be covered more by the news service on a regular basis. CBC Aboriginal was a dedicated place for Indigenous content at CBC. We wanted to supplement the news with original stories that better represented Indigenous life. Not just the diversity of nations across the country, but also the diversity of experiences. We knew that Indigenous communities were more than the crises or conflicts that dominated the headlines. Our theory was that there was an audience out there that we were missing, one that was interested in our stories. We started with one reporter and one senior producer, and we had a deal in the beginning that we could use other Indigenous journalists across the country for one day a month, like Duncan and Wab and Angela and Jillian, Merelda and Caroline. And it worked. We were successful from the outset. And there were times where our, our small little team at CBC Aboriginal, that our page hits were more than other whole regions, small regions, but still, I think it's safe to say that we exceeded expectations. 
And our success, I believe, was largely due to the connections that we as Indigenous journalists were bringing directly from our communities, that the perspectives that we were offering were different than the status quo, and that it was a much needed and refreshing change. Today, the unit is called CBC Indigenous, and it has a team of 10 dedicated reporters across the country, all focused on reporting exclusively on Indigenous issues. That growth was because, for the first time, we also had metrics. We had proof that there is an audience that is interested in these stories. Because for a long time, traditional platforms like TV and radio relied on mostly white editorial leaders who assigned stories and chose lineups. And they got to decide what Canadians were interested in. For example, I remember in one of our early stories for CBC Aboriginal, it gained interest from the network. So I was asked to file a TV story for The National. I remember being in the field and calling the desk to have my story vetted, which is a nerve-wracking process, right, Nala? Um, and I was relieved, actually, when they said that they were going to push my story back a day, until I found out why. They said, we already have another Indigenous story tonight, you know, so we're going to hold yours till tomorrow. Like, the idea being you couldn't have two, right? I was slightly annoyed, but honestly, mostly grateful that I had another day to work on my script. But exactly one year later, I was covering the final event of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Ottawa, and the TRC coverage led the National for five nights in a row. And on the day that the final report was released, the first 15 minutes of the show was all TRC coverage. In one year, it had changed that quickly. I remember at the final event, Justice Maurice Sinclair, the Chief Commissioner, told a room packed with survivors and intergenerational survivors and media that there's not a single Indigenous person in Canada who has not been touched by the legacy of residential schools. In many ways, I felt like that day was a huge milestone in my career. The growing awareness and appetite in mainstream media for Indigenous issues made the TRC's final event the biggest story in the country that day. But it was also one of the hardest days of my career. Because although I grew up in a close-knit Cree family, it wasn't until I was in university that I started connecting the dots back to the legacies of residential schools in my own family. I took an Indian Studies class focused on oral history, and one of my assignments was to interview someone to record their oral history, and I decided to interview my grandfather, Harry Belgard. I was very close to my grandfather for my whole life. He and my grandmother, Margaret, helped raise me, and I lived with them or close to them throughout my childhood. My grandpa and I spent a lot of time together, and I felt like I knew a lot about him. But it was while interviewing him for that assignment that I found out for the first time that he went to a residential school when he was six years old. He didn't tell me much about his experience except for one story. He said that as a boy, before he was taken away, that he was very close to his grandfather, that they were always together, and that after he was sent to a residential school, his grandfather died, and he remembers that he wasn't allowed to go home for the funeral. He said that he cried underneath the stairwell at the school. I thought of my grandfather that day in Ottawa and my grandmother, Margaret Walker, who ran away from the Birdle Residential School in Manitoba. She was one of the lucky ones who made it home and was never sent back. I thought about my father. They were all residential school survivors. It was difficult to maintain my composure that day, 
but I was grateful to be covering the event. I felt that my lived experiences, my connection to this issue, to this story, allowed me to provide the context that was needed to help Canadians understand the impact of that day. I wanted to ensure that the work of the TRC helped us deepen our understanding about how those legacies are continuing to impact Indigenous families and communities. The TRC final report directly linked the legacies of residential schools and the violence that Indigenous women and girls face in Canada today. Indigenous women are three times more likely to be victims of a violent crime. We are seven times more likely to be murdered. In 2015, following a report by the RCMP that found 1,182 missing or murdered Indigenous women and girls across the country, CBC launched a database focusing on unsolved cases. We found more than 230 Indigenous women and girls who were missing or murdered and whose families were still searching for answers and waiting for justice. Our team included Indigenous researchers who had the incredibly difficult job of reaching out to those families to conduct in-depth interviews. We interviewed 111 families and helped tell their stories. Our goal was to raise awareness about the issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls, but in a way that didn't only focus on that violence that resulted in their death or disappearance. We wanted to show that like Pamela George, every single woman and girl has a family that loves and misses them. The profiles in our database included photos, anecdotes of favorite memories, and for many of them, it was the first time their loved one's story was ever mentioned in the media. Along with the database, we filed a series of stories on individual cases. Leah Anderson was 15 years old when she was found murdered in her fly-in community of God's Lake Narrows in northern Manitoba. Her murder remains unsolved. I got to meet Leah's family and spend some time with them in their community, and they told me that she was a gifted artist and a performer who loved her life and her family. Amber Tuckero disappeared outside of Edmonton in 2010. When her family reported her missing, they were told by the RCMP that she's probably just out partying and to wait for a few days. Her family has since received a formal apology from the RCMP for their handling of Amber's case, but again, her case is still unsolved. Individually, these are heartbreaking stories, but collectively, they paint an even more tragic picture. If you read through or read through more than a handful of profiles on the database, you begin to see patterns emerge. So many of the women and girls were involved in the child welfare system. Many experienced childhood sexual abuse. Many had families that were residential school survivors. A few months after we launched the database, I got an email with a tip about one of the cases that we profiled. The subject of the email said, Alberta Williams murder. I clicked on it. It was only one sentence long. It said she was murdered by, and it named a person. Alberta Williams was 24 years old when she was found just off the Highway of Tears in Northern British Columbia in 1989. And the tip that we got about her unsolved case was from a retired RCMP officer. 
The tip sparked a months-long investigation and led to the creation of our CBC podcast, Missing and Murdered. Before we took on the podcast, we didn't always have the time and space to provide the context needed to understand the issue. But I quickly learned that a serialized podcast is the perfect vehicle for diving deep into one story and properly situating it in Canadian history. I might not have realized that if I hadn't attended a journalism conference in Saskatoon called Reconciliation and the Media. It was organized by Indigenous journalists Mervyn Brass and Betty Ann Adam and their colleague Jason Warwick. They organized the conference a few months after Colton Bushy was killed on a farm in rural Saskatchewan in 2015. In the room that day were editorial leaders from newsrooms across the province. The goal? was to educate journalists to create awareness and understanding that they hoped would lead to better news coverage. At that point, I was writing episode four of the first season of our podcast about Alberta Williams' case, and I remember being more than a little stressed. We were a few weeks away from launch, and I was worried that I couldn't really afford to take a day away to attend the conference. But what I learned there changed the way I do my job. It changed the way I report on all Indigenous issues. One of the keynote speakers that day was Marie Wilson, one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A former journalist, she understood the pressures we were all under in daily news. But she said that wasn't a good enough excuse. She said that as journalists, we needed to do a better job when covering stories about Indigenous people. She said, quote, don't skip the context. That's the biggest trap I know for all working journalists when time is of the essence. If you can't explain it in this story, explain it in the follow-up. Explain it. When did this story actually begin? When she said that, I thought about Alberta's story. When did it actually begin? It wasn't when she was killed in 1989. It wasn't even when she was born. In a way, Alberta's story and every MMIW story that I've covered began long before they died or went missing. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can always get our podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers... What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Connie Walker won a Pulitzer Prize and a Peabody Award for her podcast Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's. We're hearing a lecture she gave at Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The title... Exposing the Truth, Journalism's Role in Reconciliation. She gave the talk in 2021 at the 7th Annual Indigenous Speaker Series 
a series established in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. We now return to the lecture hall and speaker Connie Walker. All of their stories, all of our stories, are connected to a part of Canadian history that many Canadians don't know. They begin with the 60s scoop, with residential schools, with the Indian Act, and with colonization. Marie Wilson said it's our job as journalists to connect the dots, to provide that context, to help people understand a part of our shared history that we weren't taught in schools, a part of our history that has often been ignored or misunderstood by media. Now that you know it, you will see that intergenerational trauma show up in our modern reporting all of the time, whether you're reporting on violence against Indigenous women or girls, the over-representation of Indigenous men, women, girls, and boys in the justice system, the child welfare crisis in Indigenous communities, or pipeline protests. But too often, we don't take the time to connect the dots. I finished writing episode four after hearing Marie Wilson's words, and it included the history and legacies of residential schools in Canada. I used voices and testimonies from survivors that played at that final event of the TRC in Ottawa. We used the podcast to talk about the history of the relationship between the RCMP and Indigenous communities. We told how they were often the ones who took children from their families and communities and forced them into residential schools. And how when children ran away from residential schools, it was often the RCMP who forced them to return. We explained how that mistrust could lead to people not wanting to cooperate with the police during Alberta's murder investigation. To explain why decades later, people who never spoke to the RCMP were willing to talk to us about what they had seen the weekend that Alberta was killed. And after listening to nine episodes of our podcast about Alberta Williams, the number one feedback that we got from listeners was that they really appreciated us connecting those dots. We heard from people who said they had no idea that this had ever happened in Canada. But we also heard from people who said they thought they understood residential schools, but after listening that they came away with a different and deeper understanding. Even people who worked with Indigenous communities every day social workers, child welfare workers, healthcare workers. So when we set out to do season two of the podcast, we wanted to continue to deepen that understanding and to build on that knowledge. We knew that we wanted to dig into the issue of child welfare. And not long after that, we heard about the story of Cleo Semeganis. Cleo was a young Cree girl from the Little Pine First Nation in Saskatchewan, whose family told us was stolen, murdered, and was now missing. Hi, Christine. Hi. Connie, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Good morning. This is Christine Cameron. I'm at her apartment in North Bay, Ontario. I'm here because Christine reached out to me and asked for help to find her sister, Cleo. When Christine reached out to me, she sent me a story that she wrote about her search for Cleo. My sister Cleo died in 1975. She was 11 years old and was apprehended by the province of Saskatchewan and sent to Arkansas to a foster family where she was abused. My sister Cleo was 11 years old and remembered where she lived and who loved her. Whatever happened to her in Arkansas to make her want to leave, 
It wasn't good. She tried to hitchhike back to Little Pine, back home to the reserve, but was picked up, raped, and murdered, and left by the side of the road. 11-year-old Cleo was hitchhiking back home when she was picked up, raped, murdered, and left by the side of the road. But here's the thing. That's all that Christine and her entire family know about Cleo's death. They don't know where she was buried. They don't know if anyone was ever charged in her murder. They don't even know if Cleo was still her name. In our podcast, we dove deep into Cleo's family story to help people understand the 60s scoop and how the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in the child welfare system is linked to the legacies of residential schools. We knew that part of understanding Cleo's story would be understanding her mother, Lillian's story. Lillian Semeganis was a mother of six children, and she had all of them taken away by child welfare authorities. Lillian was also a residential school survivor, sent to a residential school in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan when she was a child. She was only seven years old. We found Lillian's residential school records that showed she never got to go home. For seven years, Lillian was listed as in residence every Christmas break and all summer long. A TRC report said that the school that Lillian attended was known as a problem establishment, that it was overcrowded and nutritionally inadequate. The year after Lillian arrived at the school, two teachers resigned and wrote a letter condemning what they saw there. They said children were whipped and that their colleagues considered the children, quote, dirty breeds and subhuman. The teacher said that three boys who tried to run away from the school were put in a makeshift prison. They said the children at Lillian School were, quote, made to bear the brunt of senile sex instincts and exposed to the most brutish forms of behavior. When telling Lillian's story and Cleo's story, it was so important for us to help people understand what Lillian went through in her life to have a sense of the childhood traumas that she would have endured that might have affected her ability to parent her children. We needed to create space for people to have empathy for Lillian. And in a podcast, we had the room to do it. In fact, I believe that podcasting is one of the best formats for telling stories about Indigenous communities because there's a growing audience out there that is willing to put on headphones and listen to a single story for hours. A few days after one of her hearings, Lillian died. She was 69 years old. You know, like, I I tried to envision my mother, the suffering that she went through to finish residential school hearings. And then her safe place, you know, to survive that and to take that suffering and just keep going. Is is that part of your quests as well now, to, to find more about her and how she lived and what happened? Oh, well, I think all my answers lie in that testimony from residential school because I know that the way she lived the rest of her life was formed by her experiences at residential school. I know in my own studies and speaking with people who have gone to residential school that, you know, it takes away your parenting skills when you have no nurturing, when you have no sense of love or, you know, 
somebody tending to you. That's why I lavish it on my own children, right? And I know that this causes, you know, waves of intergenerational trauma. Like the trauma that you see your elders live with, even your mother. When you see her sitting there, you know she's in emotional pain or she's survived something horrible. You carry that with you without speaking, right? <clears throat> it's like a shadow that kind of never goes away. And that bothers me. But that was something you saw in your mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I'd ask her about stuff, like even about Cleo, she would just shut down. I don't want to talk about it, I'm going to have to wait till I die. I'm not going to push her for that, right? There's reasons she said that. Finding Cleo was told over 10 episodes for over seven hours, and it's been downloaded over 30 million times. By using the popularity of the true crime genre, we were able to reach people who didn't even know that they were interested in Indigenous issues, people who came for the mystery, but who stayed to learn the truth about Canadian history. And it's not just finding Cleo. In-depth investigative reporting on Indigenous issues, like Tanya Talaga's Seven Fallen Feathers or Ryan McMahon's Thunder Bay, is having impact and reaching international audiences. As incredible as these changes and developments are, there's still more work to be done. And as dramatic as the shift has been in the last eight years, the last six months have been even more monumental. As one elder told me, the discovery of the unmarked graves of children at the Kamloops Indian Residential School woke up the world. His name is Eugene Arcan. Eugene has dedicated his life to helping people learn the truth about what he and other survivors of residential schools went through. Eugene spent 11 years at a residential school and is part of the Survivors Advisory Circle for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I interviewed Eugene over the summer. He told me that following the discovery in Kamloops, he felt shock, sadness, and anger. What was unearthed there was a painful reminder of what he went through at residential school. But maybe surprisingly, Eugene said that the sadness and anger that he felt immediately following the news has now been replaced with a feeling of empowerment. He told me that he realized what happened in Kamloops had opened a window and created an opportunity for us to talk about the truth. And he wasn't the only one. In the days and weeks following Kamloops, I noticed a lot of survivors coming forward and sharing their stories about what they went through in residential schools. People who had never before seen or heard talk about their stories were writing posts and sharing memories online. Connie Walker, delivering the 7th Annual Indigenous Speaker Series Lecture at Vancouver Island University. We're hearing excerpts from her lecture tonight in honour of her receiving both the Pulitzer Prize and a Peabody Award this week. Here's the conclusion of Connie's talk. A week after the news from Kamloops broke, I was scrolling through Facebook, and I read a post that stopped me in my tracks. It was written by my younger brother, Hal, and it was about my dad, Howard Cameron. It was a story about him that I had never heard before. Hal wrote that when my dad was an RCMP officer in rural Saskatchewan in the late 1970s, he pulled over a car that he suspected of drinking and driving. 
and that when he approached the driver, he realized that he recognized him. It was a priest who had abused him at residential school. My dad beat up that priest on the side of the road that night. He expected that to be the end of his career in law enforcement, that there would be a complaint, maybe even charges against him, but nothing happened. Reading that story was devastating because although I knew that my dad had gone to a residential school, I had never really thought about the specifics of what he endured there. And although I've done so much reporting about survivors and intergenerational survivors, I had never asked my own father about his experience. I didn't even know where he went to residential school or for how long. I didn't truly understand how residential schools had impacted my dad's life and therefore my own. And I felt compelled to try to learn the truth. So I've spent the last several months investigating my dad's experience at the St. Michael's Residential School in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. My father passed away in 2013, so I'm not able to ask him directly, but I've been interviewing his siblings and other survivors of that school to learn the truth about what they all went through there. And I've been searching for the priest that my dad pulled over that night. It's been incredibly difficult to hear my family's stories and to bear witness to their truths, but I feel grateful to be going through this process. I've not only learned about my dad's experience at St. Michael's, but I've been reminded of lessons that I've learned throughout my entire career, lessons that have helped me understand what it will take for us to get to reconciliation, about how it's not only important for journalists to uncover the truth, but just who gets to tell the stories is equally important. Who do we need to take this work on? Who can help us amplify the right voices and understand the context? Indigenous journalists need to be leading this work. They must be supported, resourced, and empowered, and it will be worth it. Because we bring with us a unique set of lived experiences and perspectives that are crucial for understanding the realities that Indigenous people live in Canada and how that connects back to aspects of our shared history that Canadians are just beginning to understand. I'm going to leave you tonight with one last story. In October 2018, I attended the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. It was one of the most diverse journalism conferences I've ever been to, and it made me actually really hopeful about the future of journalism. Third Coast is known as the Oscars of Audio, and on the night that the awards were handed out, a number of the winners were people of color, and it was incredibly powerful to see example after example of people who were supported and empowered to tell their own stories, being recognized for their work. One of the winners was a producer named Sarah Quevedo. He said something that I think is a lesson for all of us. He said, if you think your job is to make the world a better place, and a more just place, and a more humane place, then help us, because we are not the voiceless looking for a voice. We are the voices looking for a microphone. If you have that power, please share it with us. Thank you.
Connie Walker delivering the 7th Annual Indigenous Speakers Series Lecture at Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, British Columbia. After her talk, I joined Connie on stage. I want to start um, by talking about your early experiences. You have said in the past many times that you feel that it's your responsibility to tell Indigenous stories. And, and earlier in your lecture, you talked eloquently about the impact of the story of Pamela George. Take us to the moment, not when you noticed that story, but when you decided to take on the responsibility of lending your voice or providing the voice or telling the stories that are not told in the media. I think that when, when I learned about Pamela George, that was the first time I, I thought about becoming a journalist and what that mean. But I, I think the early experiences I had actually discouraged me and, and made me think that I, I shouldn't uh, take on that work. And actually, I, I feel like I was actively discouraged in taking on stories about Indigenous people for a big part of my career um, and by people who I think, you know, were well-intentioned and well-meaning and, and who really believed um, that it would pigeonhole me. You know, including those stories tonight was my attempt to, to try to convey what the reality was not long ago. That these were the attitudes that existed in not just newsrooms, and I don't mean to single out any organization because I'm sure that all organizations were, were similar because it's those attitudes that exist in society. And so I think that, you know, for a long time, I didn't think it was a good idea to take on these stories. And I did, and, and I like really for a big part of my career, I felt like I was kind of hanging on by my fingernails. And, and you know, I think. Part of that insecurity is what, what kind of discouraged me for, for so long. And it wasn't until the work of the TRC and, and being shown step by step that they're, okay, we're proving there's an audience, right? And, and oh, yes, there is. And, you know, we could actually see that people were interested, that I was able to get more opportunities. I don't think there was ever a conscious decision, except that once I started taking them on, I, I felt like, yes, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I want to be here. And then uh, once there was an interest, then I was like, oh my gosh, they're letting me do it. I got to keep going for as long as I can because who knows when that's going to change again. I don't think it will change, but that, that was my fear, I think, for a while. But beyond the interest, the, as you say, you, it was demonstrated that people were interested, but what, what, what of the impact? Did you see an actual impact either in Indigenous communities or beyond? Yeah, an example of that is when I was working on a fire, it was a documentary series that we worked on, and, and I think I worked on it for almost a year. It was months and months anyway. And I remember telling my family about it, that we were doing this documentary series, and they weren't interested, they didn't really care. They were like, oh yeah, you know, whatever you're doing is fine. <laughs> Supportive, obviously, but not that interested. But then the next, after Eighth Fire aired, and everybody saw it on social media, and everybody was connecting with it online, I remember... Um, than being like, oh, that's what you're working on and very excited. And I think that um, like, it, you can't underestimate how important and vital it is to see yourself in stories, to see yourself in media, to see yourself respected, because that's what it is. It's a sign of respect when you're given the space to share your story and you're given you a space to, to talk about what you care about. And, and I feel like that impact definitely helped spur me forward. And, and it's only grown, I think. It was very arresting listening to you 
talking about taking on your own story and investigating your own family's history to understand, again, providing the context to Connie Walker. Is all of this a lifelong mission, taking on this responsibility? I don't know. I mean, I think I I, I definitely, I have never made a plan about my career or or imagined where I would go or what I would want to do. But this definitely feels like the thing I should be doing right now. When the discovery was made in Kamloops of, of unmarked graves of children, seeing it acknowledged and recognized as the truth of, of what it is, that children died in residential schools and that survivors were telling the truth when they testified at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I felt like people felt the weight of that again once it was acknowledged and people paid attention. And so it was an incredibly um, emotional time, I think, for so many people. But also I think that it, for me, as a, as a storyteller and journalist, it really also helped me understand where the conversation was. And, and that for so many people, it was still a revelation that this was the truth and that this happened and that people were finally ready to acknowledge that truth. It, it also was jarring because it wasn't new information. Like there's, you know, for, for people who are paying attention to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, There's a part of the final report called Missing Children, and there's a whole section where they talk about the children who died at residential schools. And and I think that when I started being impacted by that, it it made me really interested and realize that that's what I wanted to be doing. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the importance of lived experience in people being able to tell stories and Mm -hmm. share truths that they're familiar with. I know you talked about the difficulty of getting that concept across, but can you just talk some more about that? Just the idea of what it's like to try to get into a business that was for so long and still is, you know, very concerned about objectivity and about distance from uh, an event or a background and trying to get the idea across of why lived experience actually does matter in telling a story. Yeah, I mean, I feel like for so long that that was a strike against you. If you were an Indigenous person, there was somehow a feeling that you couldn't objectively tell stories from your own community. Um, And that was something I feel like I I had to really be careful of for a big part of my career. I still am very careful about it, to to be honest. I mean, I think that one of the things that the conversations that I'm grateful is happening right now in journalism are the conversations around objectivity and and actually a recognition of how subjective journalism is and has always been, Um, and that the decisions that are made by journalists about the stories that they take on and the people that they talk to and, you know, uh, the the way in which a story is told is incredibly um, subjective in terms of whoever is the person telling that story. And I think that for so long in Canada, United States, everywhere, that those stories have been told by people who aren't representative of the societies that they're reporting on. And but again, it was done by younger journalists. What's yeah. the difference, do you think, between, uh, I'm older than you, so I'm not going to say <laughs> our generation of journalists, but the earlier generation of journalists but, uh, to today? Um, in terms of understanding... Lived experience lived and how that fits. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I would love to know from them like what, <laughs> what the change has been for them. But I feel like for me, it's been like a slow recognition that... that, that um, and, and it hasn't, like, I remember going to a panel talk and having that question from a, a senior journalist to me about, like, how, you know, assuming that I was an advocate because I was Native and, and 
trying to explain that if I'm an advocate, it's for the truth. It's for the truth about Indigenous people and our perspectives and our stories and, and how and why that's, that's important and relevant to know. Is that distinction important when you, I mean, you talk about the 30 million downloads yeah. of, of your podcast. Does that question come up of, you know, activist journalism, so to speak, between quotations versus objective journalism? How often does that come up? I don't see that people um, ask me about it that, that often, honestly. But I think that one of the things that I've realized in, in recent years, and, I've, and this has changed for me, like I remember at the beginning when, you know, there was starting to be more attention paid to Indigenous people and issues and stories. I was like, great, like there aren't enough Indigenous journalists and as many people as possible should take them on. And, and that, to me, I think in doing the work that I've done, I've realized just how important it is, um, how informed my work is by my lived experiences, by um, my perspectives, how that, that shapes every part of the process in, in terms of how we approach interviews. You know, I try, because I am somebody who's been affected by trauma in our communities, I'm very sensitive to, to that when I'm interviewing people, especially who have survived, not just, you know, the trauma of losing a loved one, but often multiple traumas throughout their lives. And trying to take a, a trauma-informed approach has really, I think, been informed by my own experiences. I, I'm realizing how that is actually a benefit to the journalism and benefit to the story that we can tell and, and, and can actually help us get closer to the truth. Please join me in thanking the 2021 Indigenous Speaker Series keynote presenter, Connie Walker. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much for sharing. You're a treasure. Thank you very much. The Peabody and Pulitzer Prize-winning Connie Walker at Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, British Columbia. You can find her award-winning podcast series, Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, on Spotify. We will also link to it on our website. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or any other, just go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also reach us on Facebook and on Twitter. The program was produced by Anne Penman, technical production Danielle Duval. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.